Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. This week, we are honored to have the incredible Susan Pierce Thompson on our show. Shortly after we recorded this interview, she posted a video log and bravely came out stating that in her current journey, she's struggling with her quantities. On our show, we refer to this as volume addiction. She stated that when she was eating out, she wasn't weighing and measuring. She was not following her one plate rule. She was eating off other people's plates and her weight was going up. Some of these behaviors dated back to two years ago. This would have been a very humbling, difficult thing for her to share with the world. She did even receive some backlash from her Brightline community. There were people supporting her, but also people shocked and felt like they were lied to. We thought this might be an excellent opportunity to talk about the power of denial and the role it plays in addiction recovery. It's the, I don't even know that I'm lying to myself disease. Denial is a state where you deny or distort reality. What's really happening? The American Psychological Association defines denial as an involuntary defense mechanism. It aims to ignore negative or unpleasant thoughts or feelings. It's a powerful coping tool to delay facing the truth. You might ignore the problem, minimize people's concerns, blame others for your issues. However, the self-deception is the most powerful denial mechanism where the individual is able to convince themselves that things aren't as bad or severe as they really are. It's an involuntary process that functions to help a person resolve that emotional conflict or ease their anxiety. It explains how people with this disease will lose their jobs, their health, or their family because they're just not even aware how bad things are. What Susan did differently was she got honest about it with everyone in the world, including her Brightline community. This is real bravery and recovery. She didn't do it for anyone else but herself. She put her recovery needs first, no matter the consequences. She shared her experience to help others in their food addiction recovery journey. She realized an eating behavior she needed to address, journaled about it, examined it in a new light. She got it out of her head and on paper so she could think about it in a different way, with new eyes, get some fresh perspective around it. She checked in with her accountability partners. She checked in with herself. She did what she felt she needed to do. And for her, that meant starting back on day one. That's not the process for all of us, but that really, in her explanation, which I encourage you to watch, she felt that that is what she needed to do. Here on our podcast, we stand behind Susan and her choice to share her humanness. As leaders in this field, it's our responsibility to model reality, imperfection, and that mistakes can happen. And when they happen, the growth that can occur because of them. Don't judge the journey. It will be individual for all of us. We caution putting anyone's recovery on a pedestal. We instead encourage you to connect with someone's story rather than compare. 
She didn't crash her car. She just swerved off the road a little. Diet culture has led us to believe that we need to operate our food plan like robots. That's just not how life works. It will never be perfect. This is a lifelong journey. So thank you for joining us today as part of your regular recovery checkup. Please know you are part of our recovery routine too. We can't do this alone. We get better together. Enjoy this interview with Susan as she models a level of vulnerability that is sometimes required to take our next steps and enter that new level of recovery we are seeking. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. I am your co-host today, along with Clarissa Kennedy. Today, we are interviewing Brightline Susan Pierce Thompson. Dr. Susan Pierce Thompson is the New York Best Times bestselling author of Brightline Eating, The Science of Living Happy, Thin, and Free. She has a sister book called The Official Brightline's Eating Cookbook, Weight Loss Made Simple, and she has just published another book, which every food addict should read, called Resume, The Powerful Reframe to End the Crash and Burn Cycle of Food Addiction. Dr. Thompson is an adjunct professor, associate professor of brain and cognitive science at the University of Rochester. She is president of the Institute for Sustainable Weight Loss, a nonprofit foundation whose mission is to conduct and disseminate research on the science of effective and sustainable weight loss. Susan is best known as founder and CEO of Brightline Eating Solutions, dedicated to creating a solution for anyone truly ready to lose excess weight um, and keep it off long-term. Her program spans over 60 countries and has hundreds of thousands of participants. So welcome, Susan. Thanks, Vera. It's so great to be here with you. Yeah, yeah. We're thrilled to have you on. So we always start with the personal. So how did you get into the whole area of food addiction? Essentially, what was your first aha moment? And then into Brightline eating, like the, that whole phenomenon <laughs> of Brightline eating. Oh my gosh. I could tell such a long version of this story. I'll try to keep it really succinct. So I come by this really honestly. I have a background of addiction, just personally being addicted to stuff. I have a brain that just gets addicted. And really my first serious addiction was to drugs. I had a weight problem already. And part of why I liked drugs so much was because they helped me manage my food and my weight. But but really I was also partying, exploring. I was a teenager. You know, I, I did my first drug when I was 14. But it escalated and I found speed when I was 16, crystal meth, and did that, you know, till I dropped out of high school with drug-induced psychosis and really just, it scrambled my brain pretty bad. Finally quit that and then found cocaine and started freebasing it. And that led to me smoking crack. And so by the age of 19, I was just a basically a crack addict and a prostitute living in loops from the crack house out to prostitute and back into the crack house. And I didn't have a place to live. And I was, yeah, spent a while in pretty bad shape. And when I, just after the age of 20, I got clean and sober. That's the first aha moment was I am an addict uh-huh. and recovery is possible. And I haven't had a drink or a drug in 27 years. Thank God. And, you know, the longer version of that story is fun because I really had no business showing up at that 12 step meeting for recovery. I really cute guy that I met at a gas station took me to this meeting on our first date, but it stuck. I just loved it. And, but I got fat really fast and I started struggling with my food really fast. And, but because of how hard I had used drugs and for how long it was really obvious to me at a certain point that I was not just eating, I was using, I was using this food. I had a, another aha moment around the food addiction when 
I tell this in, in my, my book resume, I tell the story of, I was in my first year clean and sober and I would go to this midnight meeting every night and swing by the grocery store afterwards to get all kinds of food to eat for the rest of the night. So we're talking like 1.30 in the morning, I'm hitting the grocery store or a drive through kind of place. But this one time I'd gotten just like loads of binge foods, tons of them, you know, like all the things, right? The, all the different, yeah. Anyway, and I was smoking cigarettes outside at my apartment and then coming in and binging and watching TV. And I came back into the apartment after smoking a cigarette and the TV was programming was done for the day. It was like 4 a.m. And I don't know, I'm old enough that, you know, there's like these vertical bars and it's just going, <laughs> you know, like there's no more TV lady, you know? And, and I just looked at like the pots and the plates and the, the raw this and the packages of that and all this stuff that was on my floor. And I just thought, this is not sober behavior. I am using, I'm using again. It was just like being in the crack house. So that was that aha moment. I found one 12-step program for food, found another one, blah, blah, blah. Finally stopped eating sugar and flour altogether and started weighing and measuring my food and lost all my excess weight when I was 28, which is 19 years ago. So I've been in a, in a, what I call a right size body. Now I call it a bright body because I think I really like to remove all judgment and stigma from the body thing. But frankly, I was carrying a lot of weight that my body didn't need or want and that I didn't want. And so, you know, a bright body can move and it feels right sized for you. And so I've been in this, in this body. It's for me, it's a, it's a U.S. size four and I'm small. I'm five, three and a half, you know, it's all I need. Right. So I've been there for 19 years now. Anyway, so I lost my excess weight. The aha moment for Brightline eating came, oh gosh, 11 years later. So I'd been in my right size body, my bright body for 11 years and fast forward on the like life side. After I got cleaned up, I went to community college and did well and transferred to UC Berkeley and got 4.0s and spoke at the graduation and transferred to get my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences. You read all that. I got all the, the fancy letters and all that, but I was studying the brain to find out like how a brain like mine could go so far off the rails. And that landed me ultimately as a college psychology professor. So I taught psychology in various forms at colleges and universities around the world for, I forget if it's 16 or 18 years, something like that, a long time. And I was teaching the psychology of eating at the college level. And I would teach a unit on the neuroscience of food addiction. So I was teaching this stuff professionally. I was sponsoring people and I was, I'd become sort of a go-to person in my 12-step food recovery program for like people who had questions and so, cause I was really into like the exceptions and the details and the, the brain aspect of it and all that stuff. So people would call me up to consult about stuff all the time. So one morning in my morning meditation, cause I meditate for 30 minutes every morning, this was January 26th, 2014. I was meditating. January is cold in Rochester and it was five in the morning. It was a cold winter morning. And I heard this booming, write a book called Brightline Eating. <laughs> really? It boomed at me. It was really like, write a book called Brightline Eating. And I could see the book in my mind's eye. I could see myself on the couch with Oprah. I could see myself on the Today Show. And then I also started to kind of rock back and forth in my meditation. And what was happening was I was, I was being hit with the energetic waves 
of the desperation and the prayers of people praying in the fetal position on the floor like I used to. God, please solve this food problem, this weight problem. Like I can't do it. I'm so fed up. I need help with this. And I could feel these prayers coming at me. And I don't know you know, to this day, like, was that people praying right then or from the past or from the future or whatever? I mean, I, I suspect at any given moment, there's lots of people praying that prayer mm. and it came. So at that moment in time, I was teaching five college classes. I had three children ages six, two, and two, no six, six, and two. My twins are the oldest ones, six, six, and two six, six, and three, maybe anyway. And I was doing about 30 hours a week of volunteer work for food addicts around the world. And I had no time for anything. And I, oh, and I was the assistant chair of the psychology department in my college. I had no time for anything. And it came with such force that I started getting up at 425 in the morning so that I could be writing on a book proposal from 430 to five in the morning before I meditated. That was the only slice of time I had. Anyway, and that was January, you know, within by the end of January 2014, by the end of 2015, there were 110,000 people on an email list receiving emails from me about the psychology and neuroscience of really sustainable weight loss, you know. And since then I've been educating people about this. So that's how it started. That, that was that was as fast as I could do. Yeah. <laughs> I spared you the 30 minute version. <laughs> well, that's it's a very moving version. And I'm sure as you were saying it, there are people listening to this podcast right now with that same desperation. So my sense is that you probably tapped into something, a collective unconscious that is there all the time. But for some reason it opened up for you because one of the questions I wanted to ask you is: so that was in 2014. I'm pretty sure I've been around since then. There's been a number of us who have been talking food addiction and you broke through this wall of disbelief somehow. I mean, Susan, you, you, I don't know if you have been on Oprah, but you've certainly been up there in those upper echelons of people who need like the influencers who can get this message out. And Brightline has broken that barrier. And uh, so has your book, like you're a New York Times bestseller. How did you do that? I mean, was it just that you were the chosen one? I don't know. I don't know. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I applaud you for that. Yeah, thank you. I I don't know. I don't know. I think I think there is some luck involved for sure. You know, you luck chosen whatever. You know, I don't know how these things work. It's way above my pay grade, right? But there was some serendipity that fell into play because in 2014, this guy named Jeff Walker was launching his book Launch, which became a number one New York Times bestseller, something like Launch, yeah. an internet millionaire's secret formula to sell anything yeah. online and make a lot of money dreams. and live the life of your dreams or something. Yeah. And I stumbled into his vortex online and I started learning how to build a following online from yeah. him yeah. and his courses, not him personally at first, of course, but ultimately him personally. You know, I spent many years in his very private, very exclusive mastermind group with 50 people and whatever. And I think basically, Vera, I tapped into some ways of spreading a message online that are really effective. And then training that I got when I was a kid, I was an actress when I was a kid on stage. I used to star in plays in San Francisco when I was growing up. You know, I quit when I was 12 because I got too fat from my perspective to be an actress. But, you know, 
at the age of 10, I wasn't overweight yet. And I was starring in plays in San Francisco. So I knew how to talk and I knew how to perform, if you will. And that combined with my, you know, academic background, which not everyone who wants to talk about this has that, right? It's not, it's really not a nutritional topic, right? It's a brain science topic. It's like, it's like how you're thinking. And so, you know, when I majored at UC Berkeley in cognitive science, that was a brand new major. And when I got my PhD in brain and cognitive sciences, when I applied to that, there were exactly five programs in the world for a PhD in that. That's it. I applied to them, the five programs. And so I happened to be, it's sort of like if you read the biography of Bill Gates and I'm not comparing myself to Bill Gates, I'm just saying when certain people do break through, it's more the happenstance of timing. Yeah. Like they're ready at the time that the resources are available in the world to be able to enable their success. Right. And they've got the passion to like really chase it down. Right. And and you, you certainly have the passion and you're also very eloquent. Like both of your books are like, you just say it right on exactly. And the other thing is that we we said about this earlier in the podcast or before we started, you got the street creds, like really, (laughs) I I can just say if people don't know crystal meth, it's, it's like the fentanyl of opiates. Crystal meth is the, it's the worst of all the stimulants. And if you can beat that and say, and this is the next piece I want to get to is how can you possibly say that sugar addiction is stronger than that? But I believe you. It is. You can say it because you know both both angles. So food is uh, harder. Food is the hardest. So let's, let's talk about that. Why do you say that it's the hardest? And if you listen to this. It is. There are seven reasons. I go through them in my book, Resume. And for everyone who's going to look up that book, it's spelled R-E-Z-O-O-M, like Zoom, do it fast, Resume, get back on track fast. But okay, I'll just blast through them. All right. As fast as I can. Number one, it's the only addiction that's both a substance and a process addiction. Look it up. So sugar is processed and flour are processed just like heroin and cocaine are processed. You take an innocuous plant-based substance, you extract the inner essence of it, you refine and purify it down into a fine powder, you're making a drug, right? That's a substance addiction. But most often food is classified as a behavioral addiction. It's the eating of it that creates the addiction. Well, there's no other addiction that's both a substance and a process addiction. It's the only one, which means it's recruiting all of that neurocircuitry and all of this neurocircuitry, double the whammy. Number two, it's not the only addiction, but it's one of two addictions, um, food and sex, right? That hide, but it's the only substance addiction, the only substance addiction that hijacks wiring that is so primitive it you know we were not hardwired to spend most of our waking day seeking out and procuring cocaine or alcohol and consuming it like our life depended on it but that's exactly how the brain was designed when it comes to food right and so the underlying circuits that are being hijacked are way more powerful for food number three you can't just stop eating which oh my gosh anyone who's ever tried to recover knows what you know, oh my gosh, the slippery slope. It's a nightmare, right? Like the slippery slope. It's like, where are the boundaries? If I could just stop eating altogether, it would be so much easier. Number four, food addiction is the only addiction that creates an ancillary, a side problem that when that's fatal. And when you try to solve it, drives you back to the primary addiction. I'm talking about weight gain, right? So now imagine a world in which 
the only comparable thing would be imagine a world in which drinking alcohol caused fatal acne, disfiguring permanent fatal acne. And now you quit drinking, but that's fine. You're now a sober alcoholic, but you still have the acne. And this acne is going to kill you 5, 10, 15 years 20 years earlier and in pain, it's going to cause you pain and kill you before your time. So now you go trying to find a solution for this acne. Well, there's one treatment for it. And the side effect, the main side effect is it causes alcohol cravings. <laughs> Imagine that the loop you'd be in, right? Well, that's exactly what food addiction does. It causes this weight problem, which now will kill you from all kinds of you know heart disease, diabetes, and now COVID. Thank you. And now you try to handle this weight problem, but the brain was wired to resist weight loss like your life depends on it because it does. Any extended weight loss makes your brain think that there's a famine happening, of course, and drives you to eat by shifting all your hormones around to force you to basically create, recreate cravings, binging, all the things, right? So there's that maddening loop. No other drug has that, right? It's not like when your liver is healing from alcohol use, it causes alcohol cravings. It's not like when your lungs are healing after you've quit smoking, that causes smoking cravings. Like it's ridiculous. It's terrible. Number five, four, three, four, five. I don't know. The food industry, the food industry, it has billboards everywhere. They're now putting food addicts in fMRI machines and showing them the latest commercials to see which ones light up their addictive reward centers the most. They're now putting food addicts in fMRI machines and feeding them the latest snack food concoctions, this flavor or that flavor, which one hits the bliss point better, right? When I quit smoking crack, I got a job at a movie theater selling popcorn. And as I bicycled to work, I wasn't confronted with any advertisements or cues or incentives to smoke crack, not a logo, not a place that sold it, nothing, right? If I didn't voluntarily drive over into the neighborhood where they were selling crack, there were no cues to smoke crack, but all day long, I would be cued by the food industry to eat addictive foods. The last two are, there is no other used substance that is addictive that has anything comparable in terms of the frequency and the ubiquity of triggers or cues to consume. So what I mean is like anyone who's ever smoked cigarettes knows that for probably months or years after you quit, you walk out of a restaurant or a movie theater and you get triggered like, oh, a cigarette would be good because you always light up a cigarette when you walk out of a restaurant or a movie theater, right? Well, when you're a food addict, you get cued as you're walking into the movie theater and out of the, and everywhere you go. It's like, you can't even go into a business meeting at 10 AM without them passing around Danish and bagels and pointing you to the coffee station with the cream and sugar, right? It's like, it's everywhere. So the times of day you eat all day long, the average person in America is right now eating from the moment they wake up, they're consuming calories until the moment they pass out at night. Like literally every waking moment they're consuming food on average. So when you quit, the whole day becomes a conditioned reinforcer to go back to the sauce, right? And then finally, there's nothing even remotely comparable in terms of social pressure with any other drug. Like you try to give up any drug, people are happy for you. They pat you on the back, but try to tell people you don't eat pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving or whatever your <laughs> holiday is or whatever, right? right? The pressure, pressure, pressure. And that's not just social pressure, but it's brain wiring, right? Yeah. We eat to bond. We yeah. eat to bond. And 
it doesn't feel safe from like a survival perspective to eat different than your clan or your tribe because people eat the same as the people in their clan or their tribe and you get kicked out of your clan or your tribe and you're not going to survive out there. So this is very hardwired social wiring to fit in when it comes to food. And so it's like, it's not just a little bit harder to quit food addiction than crack cocaine addiction. It's way harder way harder. Yeah. And what is just so insane about it is it's also way harder to convince the establishment, the medical establishment, that it is in fact an addiction, not even that it's way harder, but that it's even an addiction. But let's not go down that rabbit hole because we've been that. Well, and I just got to say, Vera, I'm having the tide is turning. I think we need to maybe shift our perspective on that because I've got doctors coming out of the woodwork. You know, the president of the board of the American Academy of Lifestyle Medicine endorsed Mm -hmm. my latest book, loves it just says, Oh, high time. And, you know, it was a couple years after I published my first book, bright line eating that, you know, the, the New York times in op-ed started yeah. talking about sugar and flour addiction and so forth. So I think the tide is turning. Okay. That's great. That's great. I'm very happy to hear that. Now, one of the things you said, I'm going to grab this before we get, because I want to ask about uh, the bright lines in your new book as well. But you mentioned, I just pick up on this all the time because there's such a big craze about intermittent fasting and basically fasting. And and you mentioned as one of your key reasons why food addiction is so hard is that we're wired to eat. And when we're hungry, we're wired to overeat or basically that's that sort of part. So I want to ask you about bright lines and the food plan, but I just, I'm going to ask the question first. I should wait, but just in case we don't get to it, because I want to ask this question so much. What do you do when somebody says to you, I'm a bright liner, I want to do this, but I want to fast? Yeah. You know, it's a very nuanced answer. I actually, so the science on fasting and intermittent fasting is incredibly strong, incredibly strong. From a health and point of view, yes. from a health point of view, it's incredibly strong. But you, exactly, but you and I both know that if you have food addiction, you've got to be careful to protect that as well. So here's some thoughts. One is the experts I know who support intermittent fasting would say that for long-term daily use, the best thing to do is actually to set up approximately a 12 to 16 hour fasting window, ideally maybe 13, 14, 15 hour fasting window and leave it at that. And that's what I do. I eat my breakfast at nine and I prefer 9am. So I'm not putting any calories into my body until 9am. Usually that's not because I'm virtuous. It's because I work out and I meditate and I get my kids off to school and I do a bunch of stuff and then I have time to eat breakfast and I eat an early dinner, right? So I'm eating at five or 6pm, right? Then I'm done. That means my body is getting a nice long window to fast. So the, the autophagy that kicks in autophagy for your listeners who don't know anyone out there is, um, the recycling and the healing and the repair of damaged cell, uh, parts and cells. And without that cleanup job, you get, you age way faster and you get sicker way faster. Autophagy kicks in when your system is free of food for quite a while. And by quite a while, I mean like, you know, 12 hours, you can even up the autophagy you get first thing in the morning by drinking a couple glasses, big glasses of water first thing upon awakening, because it really is serum concentrations in your blood of, of certain proteins and carbohydrates and stuff just need to go down far enough. And you can dilute your blood a little bit more and and kick that up. Now, here's the thing. I know that 
three meals a day are great. I don't think it has to be three. I think it can be two. I don't really care. I don't care if someone eats one meal a day, to be honest, if they want to eat a big meal at two in the afternoon or whatever they do and get all their calories, then as long as they're not someone who eating that volume of food triggers a binge, which isn't everybody, right? But quantities trigger binges for a lot of people. So you got to be careful about that. But let's be clear, it's not everybody, right? So we don't need, I'm, I'm not someone who's like, it needs, we need to have a rigid one size fits all solution. So the thing about meal frequency is it just has to ideally not be too many. There is a big downside to eating five times a day or six. And the reason is that it's just not very automatizable, right? Your habits are going to be all wonky. It's just like none of us would succeed very well at brushing our teeth six times a day, right? You wouldn't have the supplies on you. You would just forget. It's just hard. I'm thinking about the hunger itself. When a person is eating, especially if they're not a pure keto where they're eating a lot of proteins and fats and they're trying to get some carbs, that may not sustain a 14-hour window period. And if they're hungry, that that may trigger a binge, right? For some people, yeah. So absolutely. So Vera, let me just be clear here. I'm not talking about my standard to everyone recommendations. My recommendations out of the gate are eat breakfast at breakfast time, lunch at lunchtime, dinner at dinner time. Try not to let more than four to six hours go between meals. You know, absolutely, right? I mean, of course, the nighttime fasting window is going to be longer than that. But what I'm saying, Vera, is for people who you're the question you asked was if someone wants to fast, right? If they know it works for them or if they have a medical reason why they want to do it, I'm saying it's doable for a lot of people given these circumstances. Now, a pure water fast is also doable. What I I did a 10 day water fast, I don't know how long ago, five years ago or something. I did a three day or a five day or something and a 10 day. Literally, I had nothing but water for 10 days. And what I found was that the refeeding was easy at first because my digestive system had completely shut down. So for a day, it was kind of hard to eat anything really, but then I was voracious, right? And that's what you're talking about, Vera, is like, what do you do about that? And you've got to have really good support if you're going to do that coming back into refeeding and you've got to have a plan for the hungry food monster that's going to want to just, you know, regain, you know, replace essentially all that lost fuel. So it's doable though. And to be honest, I haven't redone that experiment. I would like to redo that experiment of the pure, like I would do a five, a five day now, or maybe a three to five day and, and just see what happens with the hungry food monster that gets kicked up. Cause it is an issue. It is an issue. There's a Facebook group called bright fasters, um, of people who have a lot more experience than I have guiding people through fasting, people who have food addiction and who are looking at blending fasting with this kind of food recovery that we do. Yeah. So what, what I usually recommend is that it's a good idea for some people for health reasons, but it should never be done alone. It should be done with a seasoned coach, somebody who knows about uh, food addiction, especially. Um, yeah. Okay. So Susan, you're right. We're already halfway through and there's, we haven't even touched a, a tenth of the questions. So can you give, is it possible uh, that can you give like a, just a two, three sentence summary of the Brightlines book? Cause I want to get to the resume. I don't want to spend time on the Brightline, but just to, basically to entice people to read it because it's worth reading. Yeah. So the book, the first book, Brightline Eating, really provides the most in-depth exposition or treatment that I've ever seen anywhere of the psychology and neuroscience of food addiction, really from the perspective of how 
the addictive foods climb into your head and convince you to keep breaking your promises to yourself. There's a trail of logic that goes from why isn't your willpower working? Uh What's up with this hunger that never goes away? Why can you finish a big dinner and then still feel like you need to eat more food? What's up with these cravings that have you driving all over the place to satisfy them at crazy hours of the night or whatever? And why exactly when you have sworn to yourself that you mean it this time, can you be just a few hours or days or weeks later, you know, eating those foods again. And I haven't seen it presented anywhere else really. So for someone who's been trapped in that maddening, baffling, hellish experience, it's really a must read book. Okay. And then you've got the food plan, which is, I guess your four bright lines, which is no sugar or sweetener, no flour, eating at specific meal times, And I think it's portion sizes, right? Those are your four bright lines. Yeah. Sugar, flour, meals, and quantities, just to shift some of that wording a little bit. It's not eating at meal times. It's just eating meals and not grazing or snacking all day. And quantities, you know, the quantities are pretty huge, actually. It's more just bounding them. So that handles the process addiction. The like, can I eat now? Can I eat now? Can I eat now? Having a brain that's just saying that to you all the time, right? And you've got this whole support community around that. So it's not just the food, but it's the support community. So I don't know when you started your vlogs, your video blogs. I think it's like seven years ago now. Yeah. Yeah, I've been putting out a weekly video for seven years. It's a library that's available on. I'm still doing it every Wednesday. A new one one came out. Yeah. Every Wednesday. Okay. And then you've got a Facebook group now and it looks like you just got a podcast as well. The vlog comes out on podcast. Okay. Okay. The vlog comes out on podcast. So it's, those are one and the same. There is the community is really in the membership. So if you go to brightlineeating.com and bright is B-R-I-G-H-T. If you go to brightlineeating.com, it's only 20 bucks a month now. It's amazing value. And we hold your hand and get you started and then take you all the way to living at maintenance, you know, for years and years and years. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's sort of where we are up to date. And then you just came out with this new book, Resume. So tell us about that. How did you get that title? What's the essence of that? So, you know, I've run the gamut in my food recovery from years upon years upon years upon years of not breaking my bright lines or my abstinence once, and then, you know, breaking them regularly and really struggling. And what what I noticed was that really the ebb and flow was very similar between those two states. The state of being abstinent or bright, you know, on track, it's not linear. If you extend it out long enough, you know, my behavior with the food and also with, with my habits that support my food recovery, they ebb and flow. I, sometimes I'm, I'm sharp and I'm on them all. And other times one or more of them are slipping for whatever reason, because I always say life gets lifey, you know? And so this notion that it's going to be a perfect straight line, it's, I think there's such perfectionism that comes with the general temperament or personality style of the recovering food addict. And what the book Resume does is it really, there's a lot of nuance in it, honestly, Vera, and a lot of seasoned, long, long, long-term recovery perspective of how do you make this livable while also protecting your sanity and and giving yourself the recovery treatment that you need? Because you do have a condition that's very serious and you've got to treat it but the unflinching perfectionism doesn't serve anybody. So there's a a reframe that says, I want you to think of yourself on a sine wave going up and down with your food, your practices, your support, all of it. I want you to notice when you're on the downslope 
and get really good at pulling yourself back into the resume mode. And the name resume came from, I always used to say when people would break their bright lines, I would say simply resume. And someone in our Bright Lifers community and our membership at one point said, let's spell it resume, R-E-Z-O-O-M, zoom fast. Because one of the principles is do it fast, you know, as Uh soon as you can, right away the next opportunity to get back on track. Can you give an illustration? Like when I think about the sine wave for myself, I think, well, there's sometimes when my four ounces is actually 4.2 ounces and, you know, I don't freak out and throw out the whole thing and do it again. Or maybe I'll eat a little bit later or sooner or something like that. But can you give an illustration? And if you'd be willing to give yourself as an illustration, yeah. if you said yourself, you had some slippery times and you've, you've reined yourself back in, presumably using this perspective. So can you just give, maybe tell how you got back? Cause I'm assuming you're back to sobriety now. Yes. I'm abstinent or bright or whatever you want to call it again yeah. for two and a half years or something now, again, you know, 19 years, like I said, since the beginning of starting this way of life, yeah. I think the most, so the most recent one is I had COVID recently and it, I had a pretty bad case of it. So I was, I felt like I had no energy. I was like, I had mono or something for two weeks and then another two weeks of feeling kind of crummy. And um, that coincided with our fridge breaking. <laughs> and so... Um, that in the so, scale. Oh, no. Yeah. And I got three kids and we all got COVID. My husband, me, three kids. And, the, you know, our nanny isn't coming around because she got COVID too. So she's in her house. And what happened was we started ordering out a lot, right? So now I'm eating foods from restaurants. And what happened was the sexiness of that food sort of climbed into my head and started to, you know, I started to think about like the food chatter was back in my head. I'm normally very peaceful around food. I don't think about it. I always say when I, you know, ideally you want your eating to be like a hot shower, right? Great when it's happening and you're not thinking about it at all for the rest of the day, right? I mean, if you really focus on it, it's more than great. It's it's miraculously fabulous. It's it's per- it's amazing. But I'm never thinking about it beforehand or after. It's just done. It's part it's it's routine, right? That's neutrality. And my food suddenly was very not neutral anymore. And you know, I just recently resumed where I started writing down my food the night before again. I don't always do that. I don't need to usually, but I started writing down my food. I started committing it to a friend in recovery, a buddy just in Brightline Eating, texting her my food. My resume all started with talking with a friend of mine and saying, look, you know, like I'm just eating out all the time. My weight crept up by whatever, like I'm still wearing my size four clothes, like I don't know, four pounds or something, you know, like whatever, that, that'll be off in a couple of weeks. But I don't think of that as like, not my bright body anymore. My bright body can be anywhere between 104 pounds and 100, 105 or 125. Like I've got a big, I'm a size four at all of those weights, you know? Right. So that's an example of what I mean. So it's kind of like what we might say is a slip as opposed to a relapse or a lapse versus a relapse. Yeah. And I don't think of it. I have a section in the book resume of like, what's a break, you know? And I'm like, don't call this a break. It's not helpful unless the only thing that's look, if you eat a plate of cookies, it's a break. I can't help you there, but anything, you know, really the other stuff is like, it's only helpful to put yourself back at day one. If 
truly you're not surrendered, your heart's not in it, and your whole program needs to be demolished and built again from the ground up. Okay. Other than that, really, I find it's a it's a very controlling, perfectionistic part of us that wants that. Uh, go back to day one. Go back to day one. I'm like, no, huh. just say, look, some red flags. I need to get back. I need to get my serenity back. I'm going to get yeah. back on. The- okay. Now I have a, a question that I don't want to lose sight of, but Chrissy, I know that you wanted to ask some stuff about the others. You introduced some new information in Resume, like how. Well, I'll let Chrissy sort of take you there, but make sure you leave me some time because I want to ask about the self-led piece, which is at the end. But go ahead, Chrissy. Yeah, I just wondered if you could speak a little bit more about the internal family systems and, you know, how, you know, you introduce that concept. And I have a lot of clients that I work with that they have been able to identify with these different parts, the indulger, the controller, perfectionist. Can you just share with our audience a little bit more about that and how that can be helpful for them? Yeah, totally. So for those who don't know, internal family systems is a new sort of uh, branch of psychology that points out the age old fact that we're not unified inside our psyches at all. Socrates pointed that out. Look, what he said, one mind cannot both want and not want at the same time. Therefore, we are all at least two. And basically we have parts, right? The part of us that wants the cookie, the part of us that doesn't want the cookie. And on a food recovery journey, this perspective of parts work, and I was first introduced to it by a genius named Everett Considine, who's a highly certified internal family systems coach and practitioner. He's amazing. And he works with, he does bright line eating himself and he works with our clients as well in bright line eating. And so, yeah, that, that's where it comes from. And the idea is when you recognize that one part of you wants to run the like most perfect program and dot the I's and cross the T's and write down the food and never deviate at all. And another part of you just want, just thinks that this is ridiculous. And why are we being so extreme about all this? And it's so rigid and it just wants to rebel and just quit the whole thing. And then another part of us just really wants to eat, right? And wants to eat for comfort, wants to eat for entertainment, you know, and then another part of us doesn't want to work our program because we want to care for everyone else and we want to, you know, take care of them and we don't have time to meditate or make phone calls. We've got, you know, kids and a mother in the hospital and, you know, a spouse. And so these are all archetypes of the parts of us that are in play. And when you recognize that, Vera, I'm going to get to your question before you even ask it, there's a highest self behind all this, right? That's really us. We're not all a jumble of parts. We actually truly are a calm, clear, connected, courageous, creative, curious, highest self, authentic self, highest self, clear self. And that self, if you have spiritual, you know, inclinations, you can call it, you know, your soul or divine or, you know, the part of you that was created in the image of God. Or if you don't have spiritual leanings, this is actually a way in to a very helpful perspective to allow you to access the best in you that can support you on your food journey. And this is where the idea of a self-led program comes in. So Vera, do you want to ask me the question that you were going to ask? Well, yeah, it was, I wanted you to define what that meant. And then also, how do you know when you're there versus the addict fooling you into thinking you can manage and then therefore slip and slide? Yeah. Great question. Okay. So what I've noticed is that the food controller 
really is in charge often when we're in recovery. And that's okay. That's okay. The food controller has been trying to manage our food all along. And what it's so grateful for is to have the support of the clarity about what to eat and what not to eat and when and how and why and people to call and disciplines to work. And the food controller finally gets the support that it needs to be successful. And oh my gosh, the food controller loves this recovery journey. Finally, we're abstaining from those foods that cause us problems. That's not a bad thing, right? The food indulger is still there in its various ways, whether it's trying to, it's the negotiator trying to say, oh, well, you could swap this for that and it'll be okay because of this. Or it's the like, like the impulsive child that's just grabbing something off the kitchen counter and just shoving it in your mouth. And you're like, what just happened? You know, or whatever. There's all these archetypes of the food indulger, but the reality is in my experience that running a food controller led program for years and decades has a downside. It's got a lot of upsides too. You'll lose your weight. You'll stay abstinent or bright, whatever you call it, right? You'll be successful, right? But there's a rigidity and a fear base to it because the food controller is always afraid that the food indulger is going to slip back in in that maddening, baffling way that it does. Even your question, Vera, had remnants of that fear in it, right? How do you know that you're not being tricked? It's such a valid question when you're an addict and you're like, but my brain tricks me all the time, right? I have a brain that doesn't always have my best interests at heart, right? But when you use this parts language, it's not just your brain, it's these parts, right? So which part is it? What are they saying? So anytime you're manifesting the eight C's, you're calm, clear, you're compassionate, you're connected, you're confident, you're curious, and you're courageous, right? Those are the eight C's. When you're manifesting those, you're in your highest self. When you're making decisions from that place, you're running a self-led program. Mm. And the way you can tell the difference, Vera, let me give you a scenario. Let's imagine you're writing down your food the night before, and your job is to eat only and exactly that. You're in recovery. And you wrote down chicken and a salad and like grilled sauteed onions and peppers for your dinner, right? That's what you're eating. Well, you know, at four o'clock in the afternoon, your kid gets an ear infection and is screaming and you're now taking them to the urgent care and you don't get home until 7.45 p.m. And a part of you is thinking it's going to take me 45 minutes or an hour to slice onions and peppers and fire the grill and grill the chicken. And I have leftover, you know, protein from last night and a bag of frozen vegetables here, right? Maybe I should do that. Well, the question is, what's your motive? Is that the hungry food monster saying, give me more food, better food, sexier food? Not really. That's you saying, I got to get to bed, (laughs) you know, and like my other kid needs me to read them a story, right? So I call this a sane choice, right? Make the switch, make the switch. Maybe your food controller is there saying, that's not what you wrote down the night before. Well, great. Set up a rule for the food controller saying, when we need to make a swap for a sane reason, a good motive, we're going to text so-and-so and and we're going to say, you know, hey, buddy in recovery, Joe, Sherry, whatever, I'm changing my dinner and here's why. Spent the afternoon in urgent care. It's gotten too late to start slicing onions. And that would work. 
that would work, right? Okay. It's a I mean, sane choice. Yeah. Okay. So in the program that I'm in, uh, we often have, you know, you, you, you say what food you're going to have or you say, or equivalent. So it would be either four or six ounces, whatever it is. And if you, and if for some reason you can't do that, as long as it's an equivalency of protein or something like that. So that's what it sounds like you're saying. As long as the bright lines or the, the lines are there, you have some wiggle room, but you're not really outstepping the, the principle of the program. Yeah. And, you know, coming back to like other topics, right? Like, well, what if my program says you can't eat this food, but I feel like it really would be fine for me. Or what if I want to try fasting or whatever, right? Check your motives, check your motives and how, what energy are you bringing to it? Are you calm, clear, curious, or are you grasping needy, you know, rebellious? Like what? Let me, I want to use you as an illustration. So a number of years ago, you admit that you did kind of slip. And, and oh yeah, uh, I was I was on and off for four years. That was out, not your higher. That was not your higher led program. That was that that got you into that, right? Initially, no. So with the the first break I had after years of you know squeaky clean, clear sailing, yeah. was I was at a baby shower and I didn't. No, it was a food indulger thing. I just wanted to keep eating cheese and salami. Basically, <laughs> I was in a baby shower. There was a platter out, and I didn't like do the the thing I should have done is put the amount I was going to eat on a plate yeah. and eat that and only that. But no, I just kept going back for more food. That was the first break. After that, it was a mix, Vera. It's not all cut and dried, right? Like the twelve step food program I was in at the time is often very judgmental, controlling, and rigid about stuff. And I really wanted to find a different way. And so there was a lot of highest self-led stuff in there. And so I ran a lot of experiments and I did a lot of like, you know, finding my path. Right. And some of it, you know, I kind of reproved a lot of like good old tested, you know, stuff of like why we do what we do in recovery. And, you know, there's a lot of things that I do now that, you know, people in that program wouldn't say is within the, whatever you just said, like within the line, within the rules, within the whatever, right? Like, no, like, so sometimes it's not easy to tell, I guess, is maybe my point now is um, you're not always going to be super clear about what's coming from a food indulger place or what's highest self-led. But if you seek it and you keep being sensitive to the whisper of your truest motives and the book resume gives you some meditations and some some ideas for how to discern nuance there, but let's be clear. This is a journey and people who have food issues, like the people who are listening to this podcast, let's be clear that food, our food issues are our biggest teacher in life and it doesn't stop. It's going to keep going on and on and on. And if you think of that as a blessing, not as just a problem to be solved once and for all, but a continual refinement of your ability to be true to yourself and to grow and to stay willing and to see different perspectives it's actually fine. You know, I think it's great. And I have to be honest with you. I think that my hesitation is exactly what you said earlier. It's my food controller that's freaking out. So anyway, that's fine. I I will own that. No problem. Um, (laughs) So we're getting close to our time. I still want to ask about critiques and stuff, but Chrissy, did you have something else before we get to our final questions? I just wondered if you could speak, you mentioned it before, kind of the neuroscience behind the volume piece, because we do have a lot of individuals who get off the drug foods, but then they go to the volume next. And could you speak a little bit about that? You mentioned it. You hit it. Yeah. Well, to be very clear, in essence, we don't know. I don't think, I don't know of any studies on that. I know a little bit about 
the physiology of how quantity is registered. Like there's stretch receptors in the stomach lining and there's nutrient density receptors in the stomach lining. And we all know now there's neurons lining the gut and it's amazing how much serotonin and dopamine are flying around the gut. Oh my gosh, who knew? And you know, all that stuff, but we don't actually, I don't think really know why, especially for some people eating more than a certain volume of food triggers a like, okay, I'm just going to binge now sort of experience. Yeah. 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 Okay. So good. So before we do our final thing, critiques, I know that Bright Lines has gotten a number of critiques. They're the same critiques that we get, like we're super rigid, you know, the idea of weighing and measuring and all that kind of stuff. It sounds like some of the information in Resume has softened some of that, but did you want to speak to some of the, like, what's the biggest um, obstacle you've had with your perspective and how do you deal with that? Like with the whole Bright Lines approach, food addiction approach? Yeah, it's interesting, Vera. There have been a couple of podcasts that have been really mean and kind of cherry picking data, you know, or perspectives or whatever. Like, like for example, saying, you know, Susan Pierce Thompson and Brightline Eating, they say don't exercise. Well, hello, welcome to the world. Like, exercise is healthy. And it's like, okay, let's, I know a lot about how great exercise is. And really, I'm just saying, don't start a new exercise program at first because uh-huh. it'll overload your system. And really, you need to, have enough kind of willpower and focus on board to make these food habits automatic, then start exercising four months later. Like that's all I'm saying. Right. So, but yes. And they'll say things like, uh, you know, I, um, there was a time when I, I early on when I had a hard time, like not popping food in my mouth, you know, because I was used to eating while I cooked all the time. Like I think most of us do. And I got so frustrated with that. I put scotch tape on my mouth, you know, just to like, (laughs) just and they're like, she recommends that people put tape on their mouth. It's so inhumane. And like all this, and I was like, well, I actually never have recommended that to anybody. I just say that I, you know, whatever. So I have to say, I'm kind of stunned by if I'm in my highest self, if I'm calm, clear and not operating from the the part of me that wants everyone to like me at all times, right? Or to approve of what I say and do. I'm kind of stunned at how much positive there has been. Like if you go on Amazon, let me just going to pardon me here. I'm just going to open up Amazon. This won't take but a second and look yeah. at the book, Bright Line Eating and how yeah. many reviews are. I don't know if anyone knows, like almost like no books get almost no books get more than a thousand reviews on Amazon. Yeah. Like it's yeah. really hard to get more. If you, my publisher told me at dinner once, he said, if your book gets more than a thousand reviews on Amazon, it will yeah. sell forever. That's oh, the rule. Man. My mouth is watering. There's now well over 6,000 reviews on Brightline Eating and, you know, a solid four and a half stars, like thousands, mostly five-star reviews. So, you know, there are haters out there, but they're in the minority. They're really in the minority. And they say it's rigid. You know, God bless them. They just don't understand food addiction, right? Like That's what we say. Yeah. You know, let's be clear. The word moderation isn't, it's like the word tall. It depends. A tall glass of water is not the same height as a tall man, right? Let's be clear about what moderation means. It depends on the entities involved. The moderate amount of arsenic for me is none. Mm -hmm. It depends on the two entities involved and you have to figure out an amount that is balanced for their constitution. I'm going to, I'm going to use that quote, the amount of arsenic in my 
constitution is none. I like yeah, that. Yeah, for a moderate amount, right? Exactly. Mercury, not even one molecule of mercury, one atom of mercury in your system causes damage. Yeah. So the moderate amount of mercury to ingest is none. And I, nobody's telling someone who's quit you know, with a three pack of cigarettes a day habit that they should be smoking moderately. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other thing that I love is when people say that, you know, eliminating whole food groups isn't reasonable. And I'm like, when did sugar become a food group? Exactly. Thank you. Are you kidding me? You yeah. have to eat to live, but you don't have to eat donuts to live. Like exactly. let's all be really clear about that. I yeah. personally eat every whole real food in the world. Every grain, every legume, every nut, every seed, every bean, every vegetable, every fruit, every meat, every dairy at some point in my bright experience, I will go, yeah, I'll eat that. I have preferences not to eat certain, like I prefer to eat more plants than meat, whatever. But there is like, I eat food, all of it. I don't eat processed industrial products that come out of the factory and get poured into a bag and sold on a grocery store shelf. I don't eat that. It's not food. All right. Thank you, Chrissy. I I mean, I'm I'm Susan. So Chrissy, do you want to do our closing questions? Yeah. I'm just wondering where can our listeners find you and what are you working on next? Yeah, absolutely. So they can find me and everything that I do and love and care about in this professional sense in, at brightlineeating.com, B-R-I-G-H-T-L-I-N-E, brightlineeating.com. And the membership, it's 20 bucks a month. I think it's actually, there's a free trial. Look for the free trial where you just get a couple weeks free just to try it out. That's where people can find me. Are you working on anything else right now or just really like promoting the Resume? So what I'm doing right now is I'm creating a course on maintenance and it's on the psychology of maintenance and then it's going to be followed. So there's going to be three courses, maintenance one, maintenance two, maintenance three. The first course is on the psychology of maintenance. The second course is on the nuts and bolts of landing the plane, like stopping the weight loss and transitioning to your right size body. And then the third course is going to be the maintenance dance, like the long-term maintenance dance. Like what are the issues and what are the things that go into really, you know, because we've got people in Brightline Eating now that have been maintaining their bright body for seven years just because of Brightline Eating. I've been maintaining for 19 years. Vera, I'm sure you've been maintaining for a long time now, right? And it's when you start to put years and years and years up, there's things about it. You know what I mean? Like it's just an interesting journey. It's you don't see people losing lots of weight and then like truly maintaining a right size body for years and decades out there in the world. And I want oh, ultimately, no. I'll turn this into a book, you know, probably yeah. this will probably be my, it won't be my, my fourth book is, oh, that's the other thing I'm working on is, um, is a book called daily bright, which is going to be a daily meditation reader for bright yeah, Beautiful. Oh, nice. Nice. All right. So we do have a signature question and that is if, If you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction, what would it be? I'm so sorry. Nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. I'm weird this way. This is such a common podcast question. Like if you could go back to your younger self and whisper something, what I'm like, no, I got nothing to say to my younger self. And what I mean by that is I don't have any regrets. The journey happened exactly the way it was supposed to happen. And, you know, that younger version of me is probably hiding with a bowl of cookie dough somewhere. And that's fine. You know, she'll get to to the point where, you know, she's 
doing something about that. And I don't need to disrupt her path and tell her anything about anything. I mean, I could, I mean, what would I say? Go down and like food addiction is going to be a big part of your life. But I think that would just like weird me out. Like I just heard this voice that said that food addiction was going to be like, what? I don't know that that would help. Well, so, you yeah. found a voice that told you to write bright lines. Very grateful for that. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate the tip. <laughs> Thank you so much, Susan, for showing up on this podcast. What a fabulous, anybody who's listening, it's a must read, bright lines, and then resume. Thanks so much, Vera. And uh, Clarissa, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.